Welcome to Voices, the EISA podcast, the space for cutting-edge research in the discipline of international relations and the audible companion to EISA, the European International Studies Association. This podcast sets the stage for deeper insights into award-winning papers, books and theses, as much as it provides a room for the critical engagement with key concepts in political and sociological thought. Voices, the EISA podcast. Feeds your reading lists, makes cutting-edge IR research audible. My name is Judith Koch. I'm a PhD student at the University of Sussex and the production manager of this podcast. Please welcome our today's host, Beste Ijlein, senior lecturer in political science at the University of Amsterdam and EISA board member. Good day, everyone. Uh, my name is Beste Ischlein, and today I'm very pleased to be hosting uh, Bahar Rumedeli, uh, who is a professor and Jean Monnet chair at the Department of International Relations at Koch University in Istanbul. Bahar's primary research areas are international relations theory and European studies, with a focus on identity, ontological security, conflict resolution and citizenship. Bahar teaches undergraduate and graduate level courses uh, on European integration, European foreign policy and international relations theory. Today we are going to speak about ontological security with Bahar. Uh, welcome Bahar, it's a pleasure uh, for me to be hosting you today. Thank you, Veste. Uh, it's also a big pleasure for me to be here and to be discussing ontological security with you. Um, so I would like to start uh, uh, by unpacking the notion of ontological security. Uh, when we look at uh, the last two, three decades of international relations literature, we see that uh, critical approaches to security have put forward a variety of concepts to move beyond uh, conventional theorizations of what security is. So these works point to the importance of studying non-traditional security concepts, such as positive security, human security and societal security. So my first question to you is, what is ontological security? And how does this notion relate to or differ from other security concepts within the IR scholarship? Okay, thank you. So I'd like to respond to this question by posing you and all the other listeners of this podcast the question. When you go to sleep at night, do you dread not waking up or waking up as a different person or waking up in a different planet Uh, you know, in a totally different environment. We usually don't. We go to sleep expecting that we will wake up as the same person, even though we know Franz Kafka metamorphosis, it's possible to wake up as a cockroach. And we expect to be waking up in the same environment as we have left it. But how do we learn to actually not dread such a possibility? This is what lies at the heart of the notion of ontological security, which Anthony Giddens has developed as a concept, drawing on the work of uh, childhood psychologist Winnicott and also psychoanalysis theorist Robert Lange and also existential thinkers like Soren Kierkegaard. 
each of us learn to develop some sort of a formed framework in life where we adopt certain mechanisms to be able to ward off or put aside existential questions or you know, unimaginable possibilities such as the ones that I have been mentioning. So we, we don't dread going to sleep because we have developed this formed framework of ontological security where we can reasonably expect that we will be waking up as the same person and we will be waking up into the same environment. So this is a fundamentally different notion of security than the kinds of security notions which have been studied in the international relations literature thus far. Because when we are talking about security in the international relations literature, whether it's an orthodox notion of security, conventional notion of state-based military security, or if we are talking about more critical or emancipatory notions of security, such as human security or societal security or securitization, desecuritization, in all those notions, we have an understanding of security as security of someone from something. Whereas when we're talking about ontological security, we're talking about security to be, security to act, and to be secure in something. So the notion of ontological security is uh, what Max Sweeney has uh, characterized to be an adjectival use of security. Uh, So... What are the ways in which we, you know, as individuals develop this formed framework where we are able to put aside such existential uncertainties and go on with our daily lives? We develop this formed framework of ontological security mainly through narratives and also routines. The uh, psychologist Winnicott that Anthony Giddens draws upon is, for example, someone who has given a lot of importance to the, you know, to stable routines in the raising of children. It is because, for example, a baby, every time he or she is put to sleep, is then woken up by a caregiver and then provided food, that is the way in which the baby learns not to dread going to sleep. So this is also a similar way, according to IR theorists. Actors in international relations develop an orientation toward the world where they can act without uh, being overly worried or overly concerned about the existential uncertainties that characterize life. So uh, ontological security then is a different notion of security because it does not presuppose an other 
that is out there, which is a threat to self. It is a much more internally experienced sense of security and insecurity. And uh, for example, scholars like uh, Brand Steele have referred to it as security as being, rather than we're not talking about security of a different thing, but we're talking about a different notion of security. Uh, so if we are to you know, think about various notions of security that we can find in the conventional as well as critical literatures, if we compare, for example, as you asked, ontological security to the notion of human security, ontological security, first of all, applies to states as well as individuals. So it does not have a um, normative stance in terms of privileging human security over the security of states. And the notion of human security is uh, very much tied to, again, preventing uh, harmful things happening to individuals. So we're talking about freedom from want, freedom from hunger, freedom from violence, whereas ontological security is to have the stability and continuity of being where we can form some sort of a consistent orientation toward life and not deal with existential uncertainties or, you know, the possibilities such as, you know, waking up from sleep as a different person. We learn to put aside such uncertainties in life through ontological uh, security. It is unfortunate, I can say, that there hasn't been a much more direct dialogue between the ontological security literature and various critical literatures on security. I think I was one of the first ones to engage in such a comparison in the um, uh, 2015 article that I published in the Journal of International Relations and Development, where I talked about, you know, for example, the um, distinction and relationship between the notion of societal security and ontological security. And um, how these two notions are distinct or whether they're distinct or not is not something that is really engaged in the current literature because different groups of scholars, you know, pursue the ontological security research agenda while others remain wedded to other concepts. But if you ask me, for example, the notion of societal security as developed by the Copenhagen School also presupposes some form of a threat uh, to the identity and values of a society and community. So there is an other out there, which is a source of threat or danger. But when we're talking about, for example, the ontological security of German society in the context of increasing migration, 
we're talking about uh, the ability of German society to maintain a stable narrative about self in the context of ongoing changes. It does not presuppose a notion of migrants or those differences to be necessarily something that is threatening identity or diluting identity. It's much more of an internal task to be developing and adjusting these self-narratives to the ongoing changes. Yeah, it was a great introduction to the topic and also a fresh one. Uh, I really like uh, the example uh, you gave about sleeping. It gives really a real touch to uh, an, a quite abstract concept. Uh, and I'm sure that our audience will all be also be able to uh, relate to this example. Um, moving to my second question which is the following. Uh, in your recent work, you argue that existing studies on uh, critical approaches to security uh, conflate ontological security and physical security. And you also argue that this conflation has implications for our theorization of the relationship between security and identity in international relations. Uh, so my question is twofold. I would like to uh, first ask you to tell us more about uh, the ways in which ontological security and physical security differ from each other um, or whether they might coexist. And my second question is, what is the added value of ontological security in our conceptualization and empirical investigation of the identity security nexus? Relatedly, is the literature on ontological security monolithic about the relationship between identity and security? And here I'm particularly referring to your work on identity construction through difference uh, with a major focus on uh, Europe and European security. Okay, thank you, Beste. Let me first of all start by saying that in the you know, the ontological security literature in IR right now is vast. And there are scholars that are defining ontological security notion in different ways. And these may be uh, subtle differences in the eyes of people who are not maybe working in this tradition, but they're important differences when you are working within this tradition. So uh, Jennifer Mitson was one of the first scholars who applied the notion of ontological security to IR. And the way she defined ontological security, first of all, was slightly different from the way in which I chose to define it in answering your first question. Uh, because when she was talking about ontological security, she chose to define it by contrasting it to physical security. So she said that states do not only pursue survival or physical security, but they also pursue ontological security, which is not the security of the body, but then she said security of the self. So while this ontological-physical distinction eh, in the preliminary stages of this research program was quite constructive, especially 
in convincing more mainstream scholars that there is something other than physical security. It is um, somewhat problematic later on because how you actually, you know, when you define ontological security as security of self, you're still talking about security of something, possibly from some other thing. Uh, Therefore, in my first earlier works on ontological security, I also uh, chose to work with this ontological physical duality. Uh, But later on, I have settled more on these two notions being distinct with respect to their emotional underpinnings. I now argue that it is much more appropriate to think of ontological security as more freedom from anxiety. While we're talking about physical, not necessarily physical security, we are talking more about freedom of fear. So the anxiety-fear distinction now, in my opinion, is much more better suited uh, to say, to capture what we're talking about, you know, when we're talking about ontological security versus other security notions. But let me come to this fear-anxiety distinction uh, later on. First, now maybe to respond to the question you posed more directly, if we still, you know, adopt this language ontological versus physical, I see them as kind of two layers of security that define our state of security in a particular point in time and in place. So uh, actors in international relations are always in a state of security which has an ontological dimension as well as a physical dimension. So uh, we can be in a state of physical security and ontological security. We can be in a state of physical insecurity, but we can be ontologically secure. And then we can be ontologically insecure, but physically secure, and ontologically insecure as well as physically insecure. So we can think of this as a two-by-two typology. So let me give you an example. Uh, This is something that I have studied in the context of conflict, conflict resolution efforts, and also, also in the case of peace building. So when we're talking about, for example, parties to protracted and intractable conflicts, let's say such as the Cyprus conflict, we're talking about parties to such conflicts, I would say, to be in a state of physical insecurity, but in a state of ontological security. And let me explain how. Of course, when you are, you know, parties to a conflict, even though the probability of violence in Cyprus today is not very high, but still, you know, you are uh, expecting and anticipating a future threat to your 
well-being, prosperity, territorial integrity to your community coming from the other at some point in the future. So that lies at the root of your physical insecurity, that the other may someday attack me. But ontological security is, as I said, having this stable orientation towards the world and towards others, and having this kind of formed framework in life. So parties to intractable conflicts quite often find themselves in a state of ontological security because... They have, uh, you know, a stable reference point, which is the enemy that they can take up in the definition of who they are in the world and what their purpose is in life. The conflict provides kind of a formed framework wherein they know who they are, what they represent, who their, you know, significant other is and what they represent and also what is uh, the system of meaning that you know governs their relation and also the uh, standards of morality what is good what is evil what is uh, serving the cause serving your national cause and what kind of action is entailed in betraying your national cause so the actions, routines, self-narratives, etc., solidified through years of conflict are given to the conflict parties as a formed framework, and they can attain a sense of ontological security within those formed frameworks. So despite being physically insecure, therefore they are quite often ontologically secure. Then what happens when conflicts enter into a process of resolution, whether it is through efforts taken by the conflict parties themselves or whether it's an internationally imposed solution by outside powers. Uh, this increases the ontological insecurity, I would argue, of the conflict parties. So they may find themselves to be more ontologically insecure because this formed framework in which they had defined their identities vis-a-vis -vis this, you know, very important existential conflict is now ruptured. They are, for example, talking about, you know, Greek Cypriots, Turkish Cypriots not being so different from one another and maybe, you know, the narrative of the conflict being a misrepresentation of history. So they now have to uh, revisit all their established understandings and redefine their identities. That opens up this box of um, existential uncertainties and the needs to redefine the self. So that creates ontological insecurity. Whereas, you know, they may be you know, in a conflict resolution or peace building process, they may experience themselves to be physically more secure than they were before because they think the other is much less likely to attack them because there is a peace process going on. What I have emphasized um, also in a volume that I edited, which is titled 
Ontological Security and Conflict Resolution, but with the subtitle Peace Anxieties, is exactly this, that peace can be a source of anxiety because it generates ontological insecurity. And when we're talking about a situation of stable peace, we're talking about parties being in a situation of both physical security as well as ontological security. The two need to be uh, existing at the same time. So uh, coming then to the link between identity and security, especially when we're, you know, thinking about the literature on securitization and the possibilities of desecuritization, uh, the understanding in securitization theory has been that, you know, if we do not frame certain issues as security issues, as existential threats, if we take them out of the security realm and put them under a normal political uh, discussion, then we would be achieving desecuritization. What I emphasize with this two-layered conception of security is it's not that simple. Because even, you know, when you take, you know, the security or threat out of the situation, like as I discussed in, you know, conflict resolution or peace building measures, you also have a situation of ontological, you may also have a situation of ontological insecurity, that desecuritization may generate ontological insecurity. Uh, so you need to also reinstate ontological security by finding a new narrative under which the conflict parties can reimagine themselves uh, as belonging to new identities or new conceptions of self and can slowly develop new routines toward one another. So that is where I think the identity security linkage is important. And we capture it much better when we think about ontological and physical security as two layers of security that, you know, coexist as different layers of security. Um, thanks for these clear uh, definitions and uh, elaboration, Bahar. It is uh, very useful. Um, you also briefly mentioned the notion of uh, anxiety, and this is uh, what my uh, next question exactly seeks to uh, further explore. Um, in your 2020 article in International Theory, you engage with Hobbes and existentialist philosophy, and you call for recognizing the notion of anxiety as a constitutive condition for state behavior in international relations. And in this article, you move to uh, an investigation of uh, the notion of anxiety in the study of ontological security and uh, IR theory in general. So I would like to invite you to unpack this for us. Uh, what is the role of uh, anxiety in Hobbesian um, political theory? And how do you think uh, this notion enriches our understanding of state ontological security? Mm -hmm. 
So yeah, briefly, it was my kind of dissatisfaction with existing and my own mm, efforts to, you know, specify this distinction between ontological and physical security that eventually led me down this path of, you know, thinking about anxiety and its distinction from fear. And I found it to be quite interesting, actually, that, you know, this distinction between anxiety and fear is not really taken very seriously or didn't have, um, you know, established literature on it before in international relations, whereas it is quite central to existentialist thinking. And since we know IR is in general open to all currents of social and political theory, I was actually quite surprised that anxiety is absent. Because in, I mean, in current psychological literature, as well as, you know, when we're talking about anxiety in our day-to-day lives, uh, we often think of it as being analogous to fear. But existentialists make a very important distinction. And here I'm referring especially to Kierkegaard and Heidegger, that one is always afraid of something that is exist in the world, Heidegger says, but anxious about non-beings. Kierkegaard says, you know, um, or before that, you know, Heidegger emphasizes that one does not know what in the face of which one is anxious of. So uh, as I was talking about ontological security, not necessarily being security from something, I think that is a much, uh, therefore, appropriate way to think about ontological security. Kierkegaard mentioned it as, you know, the infinite of possibility, that which, you know, creates this dread and trepidation and unease. And that is at the root of anxiety. So, you know, again, linking to my very first example, you know, when we're talking about infinity of possibility, you know, is it really possible that we wake up as a different person and that causes some kind of a dread and unease in us? So in existentialist thought, the very key human attribute is that we always live in awareness of our own death. So we don't experience fear, for example, that when we are attacked by something and we're about to die. We always live in the awareness that we will die one day and we don't know what lies after death and we don't know when and how our death is going to happen. And for existentialists, this is a very constitutive, defining aspect of humanity. And at the root of this is anxiety about that. It's not so much the fear, but for example, uh, there is also a thinker called Paul Tillich who establishes a very good contrast between anxiety about death and fear of death. He says that, you know, 
We are anxious about death because we don't know what happens after death. Nobody knows and we don't know when and how it will happen. Therefore, he says, we direct our anxieties about death into specific fears of death. Like we fear dying in a car accident or we fear dying from cancer or we fear dying from COVID. And then once it, this anxiety is objectified into definite fears like that, it's much easier to handle because we know what protective measures we can take. We can drive safely, wear a seatbelt, eat organic, and then wear our masks and receive our vaccines. So this is the way in which we deal with fundamental anxieties. In the same way, I'm suggesting that anxiety is uh, an ontological insecurity. The quest to achieve ontological security is about, you know, dealing with this existential uncertainties surrounding us that we kind of projected into these specific and definite fears, which are always in the realm of physical security, and that's how we deal with them. So in other words, I think the anxiety-fear distinction is much more suitable starting point to be thinking about when we're talking about how ontological security is distinct from other notions of security. We are under a condition of ontological insecurity. We are anxious. We are facing many possibilities. We're facing a hard uncertainty where we cannot really anticipate the probability of different possibilities. We feel unease, but that is not necessarily directed toward a definite external threat. It is when we convert anxieties into fear, then we begin to experience insecurity more in the conventional sense because we fear certain things or others as threats to us and we deal with them. About Hobbes, I did not really want to be putting anxiety into the literature in IR theory as some other emotion that exists because we already know there is an extensive literature on emotions in IR. And, you know, emotions such as fear, guilt, shame, humiliation, and many others I cannot name right now, are being considered and discussed as relevant to IR phenomena. I didn't just want to be saying that anxiety also matters, you know, in addition to fear, guilt, shame, and all other emotions out there. Because that is not how anxiety is theorized in existentialist thought. But then how do you uh, convince an IR audience that believes that fear is the most important emotional motive guiding actor behavior in international relations, that anxiety is more fundamental? I try to do that by offering um, you know, different reading of Hobbes. And that I did by reference to secondary political theory literature mostly, because I'm not a 
scholar of hops and it requires an extensive expertise to become a scholar of hops. But what I realized is that there is indeed, uh, you know, sizable secondary literature on hops, which looks at the notion of anxiety in Hobbesian thought. And there are also those who argue that, you know, hopes thinks about the anxiety and fear distinction the very same way the existentialists think about that distinction. So I centered my writing on Hobbes because I wanted to convince an IR audience who would be much more inclined to think that, oh, anxiety is something else that matters when fear is not present. I wanted to establish that anxiety is actually what is constitutive of fear. Well, I think you have done an amazing job uh, in terms of clarifying super complex uh, concepts and uh, theoretical constructs. Um, and you have also briefly touched upon uh, the case of uh, Cyprus. Um, uh, my last question would be uh, maybe to delve into some of the empirical work from your um, uh, most mm -hmm. recent uh, uh, studies. Um, I have read with uh, great interest uh, two of your recent publications, um, utilizing ontological security to understand security in Europe. Uh, for example, in uh, Breaking with Europe's Past, uh, Memory, Reconciliation and Ontological Insecurity, uh, which came out uh, in the journal uh, European Security, you revisit the historical narrative which uh, presents European integration as a project of uh, distancing Europe from its uh, violent and totalitarian past. Um, and the second uh, publication, um, which appeared in Security Dialogue, um, is entitled Ontological Insecurity in Asymmetric Conflicts, Reflections on Agonistic Peace in Turkey's Kurdish Issue, which you have co-authored with uh, Ayşe Begüm Çelik. And in this uh, piece, you look at Turkey's Kurdish issue, uh, particularly the 2009 and 2015 peace process. So which aspects of the ontological security uh, literature did you benefit mm -hmm. in these uh, two studies? Mm -hmm. And can you tell us what new insights have you been able to uh, produce using this specific uh, literature? Yeah, thank you for this question. Definitely, you know, as uh, Turkish scholars, uh, there are issues out in the world that, you know, concern us and we would like to, you know, make use of our theories in ways that shed new light on these issues that concern us. So with regard to, of course, you know, we were very disappointed with the ultimate failure of the various efforts which were taken to create a um, Turkish-Kurdish reconciliation process in Turkey in the beginning of 2010s. And uh, my co-author, uh, Betül Çelik and I, uh, thought that you know, the ontological security framework can provide some answers about why this process was unsuccessful and maybe can offer some guidance to policymakers if such a process is attempted in the future. So basically our argument was kind of simple. 
because we started from the premise that, you know, the designers of this reconciliation peace process didn't take into account ontological security concerns of the parties. That is, in other words, there haven't been efforts to construct new narratives around which both Turks and Kurds, you know, if we think of them as, you know, kind of parties to this conflict, can reinstate a renewed state of ontological security, a new self-narrative, which they can develop, which would give them ontological security. Of course, it doesn't mean, you know, there were some attempts, you know, just maybe reference to Turks and Kurds being brothers, etc. But those remained very superficial. Because uh, when we're talking about parties which have been in, you know, long, intractable conflicts for a long time, it is important that, you know, peace doesn't mean succumbing to the other's narrative. That uh, they would like to, there needs to be a way where parties, after reaching certain compromises, they will be able to justify those compromises in the context of their existing narratives and thereby also maintain a sense of ontological security. And this is a process, we argued, which can be realized only through an agonistic process of peace building. That is, you should, instead of imposing a certain way of reconstructing identities to the parties, allow them to negotiate and debate and find their own compromises. That's basically the situation. But what we're hoping is that if uh, there is such an attempt in the future, that it starts with also taking into account that the demands and rights of each other part of the different parties, but it also pays attention to the narratives and meanings within which uh, the peace process is um, carried out. Because if the peace process renders Turks or Kurds or both of them ontologically insecure in the end, it is always going to remain vulnerable to spoilers as it has been in the past. Now about Europe. Actually, I also have some works in progress on this issue, and it is about, you know, how successful is Europe, is the EU in terms of building an ontological security community. Because, you know, the fact that, you know, since World War II, uh, peace in Europe has prevailed thanks to the EU, is widely accepted as testament of the fact that the EU has become a security community. But what they have in mind is, of course, physical security community, that the states 
in Europe do not expect or prepare to go to war with one another. So I chose to uh, kind of engage with the question but of whether the EU has been equally successful in constructing an ontological security community. And in that respect, then I looked, I stressed kind of the importance of reconciliation and also the politics of memory. How, you know, the EU uh, establishes its legitimacy on the basis of having formed a definitive break with the Europe's war-torn and totalitarian and authoritarian paths. But, you know, as ontological security theory suggests, any form of radical break with the past is something which is potentially ontological insecurity inducing. Therefore, the question is, has the European Union been equally successful in allowing these societies, groups, etc., affected in various ways by past conflicts or, you know, by previous regimes, reinstate a state of ontological security in the uh, context of today, which is, you know, European integration. Overall, maybe it wasn't stated very clearly in the article, but I can make this point right now, that this notion of breaking with the past, uh, being the EU's overall raison d'etre, you know, uh, countries and societies need to find ways, need to develop narratives which connect their pre-integration, pre-EU past, with their EU presence and, you know, hopefully EU futures. This is, for example, what Britain failed at because it didn't find, wasn't able to develop a narrative which could link its pre-integration past with its, you know, EU members present. Uh, the pre-EU past became an alternative vision for Britain's future that, you know, we were much better off, we were more glorious before EU membership, we will be the Great Britain again, etc. So that is, I think, maybe the British example is a good example of how ontological insecurity is important and, you know, this uh, notion of breaking with the past can be generating various ontological insecurities and leading to the formation of uh, some sort of um, discontentment with the EU and thinking of EU as being opposed to, you know, nationalism or to national identity. Thanks for this inspiring talk, uh, Bahar. I learned a lot. And you said that you have works in progress on ontological security. And I very much look forward to uh, reading your work. And I highly recommend Bahar's uh, previous work on uh, identity and European security to our audience. Thank you. Thank you for this opportunity. Thank you for listening. Please find all information on today's interview guests and hosts in the show notes.
Voices, the EISA podcast, is available on all established podcast platforms. If you liked it, subscribe now. Voices, the EISA podcast. Feeds your reading lists, makes cutting-edge IR research audible. <laughs>